Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. This is Dr. Jim Hoven, and I have another incredible opportunity to deconstruct and check into people who are making a difference in not only their own lives in the small communities around them, but into an extended community at large. And today, I am really excited because this is something that we have not done before with respect to a podcast. It's round two. <laughs> and not round two with respect to more information, a deeper dive on a subject, but rather this is a redo of a an early COVID slash Colorado fire episode that we did for this amazing, this amazing group called um, Mirror Image. And we're going to talk more about them, but we had sound issues. And so you guys were kind enough to donate your time then, and you're kind enough to come back today. So now we're doing it in person. It's so great to see your faces instead of doing this on, you know, video with, all kinds of crazy. So you guys welcome. And let me introduce you first. We have Andrew Raybold and we have Maya Osterman. So guys, welcome. Thank you for coming back. And I can't wait to go through this with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for that warm welcome again. And also just such a pleasure to be able to spend this time with you today. Well, we are excited. I can't wait to, to go through what all mirror image does this, you know, um, you made such an impact on me last time when we spoke because the connection between, and I don't want to, you know, be spoiler alert here, but the connection between social issues, the way people behave, and the theater to me is fascinating. And and what I learned from you last time really piqued my interest. So I want to hit some of that, and maybe it'll drive us into some deeper conversations today as well. So if you wouldn't mind, first, would you just both introduce yourselves a little bit about who you are and what you do for Mirror Image? Once we do that, then we'll get into what Mirror Image is. Yeah, so... I'll go first. Um, my name is Andrea Raybold, and I am the executive director of Mirror Image Arts. I've actually been the executive director since 2012, but the part of my story that I love to tell is that I actually joined the organization when it first started back in 2008 as an actor um, traveling with the show all over the state of Colorado. So I'm so happy to still be a part of this organization and to have been able to um, be such such a pioneer uh, and, and part of the architecture work of where it's come today. That is beautiful. And I can't wait to delve more into your story. So, so Maya, tell me about you. Yeah, I'm Maya. I'm the Program and Partnerships Director. I've been with the organization coming up on six years. Um, and it has been such an incredible journey to be on and see where we have come in the last six years. And you do programmatic stuff, right? You I do. You work a lot with making sure that these programs come off without a hitch for all the audiences that you serve. Yeah. So building curriculum, running cur the programming, supporting our program staff, all and, things program and partnerships. Ooh, partnerships. That's the big one too. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll talk about all of that and more. But before we do, can you guys describe for the audience what Mirror Image is? Not only the I love the, the mission that we have in some of the, the portions of your program of disrupt. And we don't necessarily have to go through what disrupt means right at the moment, but give the audience a, a global sense of how mirror image makes a difference in the community. You want to take that first? Uh, you can start. Go for it. It's such a large question. It is such a large <laughs> question. Oh man, where to begin? So I think the place that I would start with with is our focus and our passion, which is disrupting the school to prison pipeline. And we believe that that will be possible in a multitude of ways. And we as an organization take it 
seriously the responsibility of impacting that disruption from those multiple modalities. So the main way that we do that is through our programming, um, which is both working with young people in schools and detention centers, and then working with the adults who work with those young people. We also um, are involved in advocacy work and the larger community and how this pipeline is impacting us as a whole. Mm. And the tool for that predominantly is theater, correct? Mm -hmm. And that would that's really where the uniqueness of this comes because for most people, we think of theater as an escape. It's a way to get away from our troubles for a little mm -hmm. while and not necessarily theater specific, but acting, TV, movies. And so now what you guys have done is you've brought the issues that, that young people face in particular and you've brought them back into the face of those same kids with ability to handle those situations in different ways that are um, that would put them at risk. Is that is that an accurate reflection of that? Yeah, there's two ways that we like to describe what theater does. Theater is, for us, the study of humanity, so it's an opportunity to understand what it means to be human, and honestly, none of us are, like, experts at it, and so there's <laughs> a need for exploration and to feel like you can fail and fail often because in failing is where we actually learn, and so theater creates a a really interesting space that can be made safe, but also elevate the circumstances, the risks so that they reflect real life. And, and then you can act as yourself in situations that you would be facing in real life. So that's the second part that we like to use to describe our theater is that it's a rehearsal for reality. And it's really what we do is come in with different scenarios that are you know, created by our young people that we work with that reflect their lives. And then we, have, we activate them using professional actors, but then have the young people step in as themselves and as characters within that larger story. Um, and make choices for themselves, for others, and to experience what those choices feel like and how they would respond to what's happening with that interaction with another human. That is so powerful. And I think we, we need to dig into that a little bit deeper so that people could kind of get the gist of it. Because we talked about what, what you just described is kind of at an umbrella style global level, but I think giving some real granular context to, to that would really help the emotional connection. But before we do, I want to go back into the history because it not always been mirror image was not always about this particular solving this particular problem or crisis, which I think in many uh, terms is the right term crisis in many ways. But when it started, I'll let you guys tell the story, but it wasn't started for this at all. It was started for more um, kind of eating disorders, body image stuff, right? Yeah. So Ultimately, um, it originally started bringing education and awareness to eating disorders and really focusing more on, on eating disorders as a mental health issue. And even at the time, back in 2008, eating disorders were still in some and a lot of places considered a physical um, issue, not just not a mental health issue. And so right. this was actually an opportunity to start bringing voice to and destigmatization to mental health. And in some ways, that has not changed in, in, in what we do. And then theater was always the modality. So mm -hmm. those are the two pieces that have kind of stuck with us. But what has shifted over time is just 
in working with young people and actually hearing their voice and understanding what it is that they're dealing with on a daily basis, we needed to be responsive to that because our whole idea here was to work with young people and help support them in whatever it is that they needed and help them realize that they are the mantle of experts of their own lives. And we're just going to support them as trusted adults to help them move through that journey um, into adulthood. So that was ultimately the, the goal. And along the way, they told us a lot of different things that they were dealing with. And so at one point it was bullying. It's still bullying, but it's deepened since then. But it was around conflict management and relationship management and being able to be in community with each other. And then over time, as we're working with these young people inside of the whole education system, we were learning more about the issues that arise and that we have created within the education system. And that's how we were um, connected to a little bit of the beginning of the school to prison pipeline aspect because we were seeing a lot of punitive disciplinary approaches for youth development instead of positive youth development, instead of more restorative practices. And so that was the beginning of the pipeline journey. And then a few years later, Maya, who was the founder of a program called Restorative Theater, we had an opportunity to bring that into this organization for a variety of different reasons. It really fit with our mission. And when we brought that on, we saw the other end of that pipeline because restorative theater is theater in the juvenile um, justice system. Mm -hmm. And so we were like all of a sudden observers of the pipeline without ever really having spent a lot of time researching it. We saw it in the field. We saw what was happening. And we heard the stories of our young people in the juvenile detention center and how they were completing the stories that we were beginning to see of our youth in the education system. So that's the beginning of it. And then Maya, is there anything else you would add to that? Man, I don't know. That was such a good... <laughs> That was a really good description. I think, again, the biggest thing being that at the root cause of all of this is around social-emotional well-being and that, that those skills and tools and development are, are critical components of the entire journey that we have been on and is the piece that we focus our work in all of our spaces. So with that being the sense, there's a lot to unpack here that you guys just shared. And so um, I want to keep it in rewind mode just a minute because the you can hear the commitment and the passion in your voices as you're sharing with me what you guys do. How did you both get to this point? Because, and Andrew, you said you were an actor for the original company to help with the body image for eating disorders mm -hmm. side of things. One, how did you know you wanted to be an actor? Was that always in your childhood passion and dreams? And two, how do you connect to the social side of acting as opposed to going for the entertainment side? Mm. So I actually, um, I did not come into theater until later in my life in high school. And what I was so grateful for in that journey is that theater was community for me. There were a lot of moments in my young, in my youth where I just felt isolated and alone. And I didn't know who my tribe was. I didn't know who my people were. And I didn't know where I fit or where I belonged. And so that's a crucial component to the beginning of my journey is that theater was community for me. It wasn't just this thing that I was like, oh, I'm good at. I love it. I, I, I love the expression that I get to do. It became that. And therefore, it actually helped me. I oftentimes say theater is not therapy, but it can be therapeutic. And so there was a lot of emoting that I was getting to do, a lot of processing emotions 
through character work, so not as myself, not putting myself at risk, but actually being able to still process those emotions that were welling up inside of me and being housed in my body through the actual art of theater and portraying somebody else on stage in drama. And so then after that, I actually, in college, I decided to pursue it in college. And in college was the moment, it was a very traditional theater route. And in college, there was a moment that I had where um, I was asked to perform in a play. I was cast in a play. It was called Not About Nightingales. It's a Tennessee Williams under, you know, um, not often heard of play, but it was about prison and prison specifically in the 1930s, right before prison reform happened in this country. And so he was writing about that. And I lived at the time in a college town that was the prison capital of Texas. So I'm from Texas. And there was a, a, a unit called the Walls Unit that is one of the only units I've ever seen that was literally in the middle of the town. Most units are actually placed outside of town. Right. We like to get those as far away from our site as possible. And so it was in town and it happened to also be the place where they housed uh, or they didn't house. They actually did um, the death. The, it okay. Was, it was part of the right. That's journey what they towards did there. Death, um, death penalty in Texas. Yeah. So we had the opportunity because the, the prisons were so close to actually go and tour prisons. And the moment that I stepped into that, this unit that had been literally three blocks away from where I lived at the time, I would pass by it every single day um, on my way to college and to class and to be allowed into that space and to see and witness a part of humanity that had been locked away, locked away from me, locked away from others. And those that were locked away shifted my entire mindset and, and sort of just ripped um, my own understanding of humanity that day. And so and sitting with that, I just couldn't leave it. I couldn't, I was so deeply impacted by it that after we did the play, I um, had the opportunity to go back into prisons and do, um, there was a college course that they were teaching in the prison and I would come in as an actor. And so that actually started my idea of, oh, theater can actually be this tool where we're connecting with um, people in society that have been locked away and dehumanized. Interesting, put that on hold, come to Colorado, try to go down the traditional theater route am introduced to mirror image arts. And at the time, I, I and this is part of my story that there's not a lot I can um, still go into, but I'm, I'm willing to continue to put more voice to the fact that I've had a relationship with an eating disorder. And so it actually spoke a lot to my own experience. And I was just enough along in my healing process that I could finally talk about it a little bit and put words to it and be there for other young people who may actually be on the beginning of that journey or maybe in the middle of it, but either way they could have somebody who could walk with them on that journey. So that's originally why I did it. And then Miramage Arts is the one that shifted me entirely over to the understanding that theater can be done for social change. And then years later, Maya comes into my life and introduces the prison back to my life again. And it sort of became just this full circle of understanding that theater is also humanizing. And this is our opportunity to bring back our human, like the humanity to human. Oh, that is so brilliant. And Maya, what about you? How did you come to the theater and to, especially now to this side of the incarcerated being, you know, being able to be helped through theater? Yeah, so my journey is uh, very different in the fact that I also really wasn't introduced to theater until high school, but it was from the moment I started with a social justice lens. So 
Uh, I grew up in Florida and our planned parenthood had a theater company where we would go to high schools and perform plays around teen pregnancy and AIDS HIV awareness. And so that was my introduction to theater was that it was a tool that could be used to bring people together and talk about real issues that were happening in your community. Then because of the world we were in, I also, the only way I knew to continue it was through the traditional route. Um, ended up going to boarding school for performing arts, then went to go get my BFA at CU Boulder. And luckily on that campus, there was an incredible theater company called the Interactive Theater Project that I was a part of all four years of my college career that were just, if not more important than getting my BFA. Wow. And we hmm. went on campus and performed plays around every ism and every issue that impacts a college campus. And I still, that's when I started to learn the terms that there's this applied theater, which is taking theater into non-traditional spaces, that social justice theater is, there's a whole world of it, that theater of the oppressed is a style of theater that was created specifically to do this work. So my whole trajectory was connected with this. And I went back through college papers and at 19 was saying, I will be a social justice theater practitioner. That's going to be my career. So it has, it has always been a part of who I am. And um, one of the, the kind of senior project that we had to do, I pushed us to do something with a social justice lens and our my small cohort, we ended up picking this subject of sex trafficking. And that um, opened up a whole world that just like the prison system, it is everywhere and it is all over America and it is hidden, but it is very prevalent. And that took me on a whole journey of years and years of doing work with survivors of sex trafficking and individuals who work with survivors. And I traveled the country and interviewed people and wrote a one woman show about it. Um, and on that journey, I was really curious around this element of humanity. And what is, what is the moment when someone can see another person as a commodity instead of a person? What has to happen? Because everyone comes into this world not seeing things that way. And so what is the switch? And I was really curious to get on the other side of this issue. And the only way that I could think of how to even get in contact with people on the other side is in prisons. Um, but I've always had an interest in, in young people more than adults. I, they're curious and exciting and they push you to think deeper and differently and they're honest and they're raw. So for me, juvenile detention centers were just the natural place to go, especially when I was seeing that um, 12 to 14 is the age of when you're most likely to enter into the world of sex trafficking and how much of that connection of predominantly men are not that far off in age. So I knew that I could still find some of my answers within the youth space. And so I went and started just volunteering at a facility while I was working in North Carolina. This was eight years ago, I think, at this point, um, working with young men to understand their story. And there was a really pivotal moment um, using a technique called hot seating, 
which is a theater of the oppressed technique where you stay in character and audience asks you questions in character. And um, the, the young men had pushed me to perform part of my play for them. They really wanted to see it. And so I performed part of this piece and they were asking me questions. To now, were you, I'm sorry to interrupt, were you, were you the, in character, were you the person that had been trafficked or you were the trafficker? Uh, in that moment, I was performing someone who had been trafficked. And so these these young men were people that would have been the traffickers asking you questions? Potentially. I hadn't I really known enough about their stories yet or even if they were connected. Um, and then one of the young men asked if, if he could try it and set, got on stage and sat down. And I said, who do you want to be? And he said, uh, I'm thinking about one of my friends. And we said, okay. And we started asking him questions. And what came out that I later learned from the staff was that this was his story, but he was telling it as if it was a friend. And it was the story of how he actually had become um, a pimp to his mother. Mm. And it was the need and necessity to feed himself and his younger brother, that he was in a single home, that his mother was addicted to drugs, that there were men coming into his house and he had no food to feed himself. And so one day he said, I just stood in front of the door where my mom's bed was and I made them give me the money instead of her for drugs. And that was the switch of, if I can do that for my mom, then that kind of opens the doors. And what I, the bigger issue that I learned is the cycle of trauma specifically connected to sexual abuse and that it is a cycle. Mm. And you don't, you start always on the side of a victim and that might translate to then becoming an offender, but it is a cycle. And that completely shifted my mindset of these young men and all the same thing, we're throwing them away, we're pushing them behind a door and no one is cares to even hear their story, to understand what got you to here, and knowing that you're a youth, you're going to get out. So what happens on the other side? Mm. And if we just continue to see these young men and women as criminals and throw away, why would we think that when they get out, they're going to see themselves any differently? If that is the messaging that they keep being told. That is so powerful. You know, as I'm just sitting here listening to this, it's so moving to me. Um, both of you come from this space of having now transcended, and my you are more all the way along from the social justice side on um, whether it be sex trafficking or other offenses. And Andrew, you coming from where the mirror image art started, which is kind of on the eating disorder, but then having the connection to the incarcerated side. Was it, did you two both have a, a powerful um, influence on the, the organization moving from eating disorders, kind of the continuum to bullying, and now this, this school-to-prison pipeline that you've referred to a couple of times? Was, was that a direct influence? I can't help but think that it was, and if so, how was that received by the, the actors and the company and the board or, or however? What was that transition like? Yeah, first just have to say, I thought you were going to say, did we have a powerful first meeting? And boy, did we. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> As she walked through those doors, I was like, oh, 
<laughs> That's my person. She's yes. on fire. Yes. Um, yes, I hear it for sure. <laughs> Um, I don't know. How would you answer that? Do you have an initial answer to that? I think yes. I would say yes. But I think not necessarily because of the issue, but because of how we both engage with this work. Curiosity, deep curiosity is such a core value of how both of us navigate the world. And so that naturally led us down a path of just opening our eyes to truly listening. These issues are always have been here and we just took the time to stay curious with our young people and it naturally led us back to a world that we were exposed to because it's, it's such an intertwined and integral part of our society that's just quieted. Yes, mm-hmm. extremely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the only part of the story that I just want to highlight. I love the way you answered that because ultimately our young people helped us get here. We didn't, we didn't place any of this on them. We just listened and understood and tried to come from a place of curiosity and ask deeper questions and help them ask deeper questions of themselves in order for us to all land here. So I think in some ways, how did people react? They kind of said, oh, thank goodness you're finally saying it because I think I felt this all along, but I didn't, I didn't know how to actually put words to that. Um, so it was such an organic process of listening and asking questions that by the time we got to the answer, everybody was like, oh, that's it. That's it. Right. That's what we've actually been doing. I'm so glad that we have one sentence to say it instead of the paragraphs <laughs> that we lose, we lose people <laughs> by the yeah. time we're done saying what we try to do, what we're trying to do. So looking at the audience, if, if I'm correct, you guys start fairly young, right? Uh, the, the ages are... Second grade. Second grade. Is that about six years old, seven years old, and up to 21. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested, do you have the same message tailored at an age-appropriate thing, or or is it more bullying because you see a cycle that leads up to the the pipeline or, or through the pipeline, so to speak? So at younger ages, you work on these issues, and on older ages, you work at these issues, or is it the same issue given in context of age. How do you go about that education process and interaction? So it's a yes and. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes and, okay. The large scale question is who am I and how do I fit into this world? That's what we're all trying to figure out, right? And so that's the core of what we're trying to navigate and explore together. And then based on age and what's developmentally appropriate, and what comes out of who am I. So who am I in fourth, fifth grade shows up with more bullying because we're trying to understand belonging versus othering, and that manifests through bullying. So at each age range, based on the manifestation of discovery of who am I, we mirror back mm-hmm. the experiences that they are going through in their exploration. But it is all leading to the same concepts and ideas, and the language that we use might be shifted based on age appropriateness as well. And so do you look to have an audience, let's say, you? I know that at-risk youth is kind of the target audience, but then there's a lot of youth, like I would be considered one of this next category I'm gonna describe to you, 
I grew up in a, a you know, all white Christian school, super conservative, yada, 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 you know, and not everyone in the school is affluent by any means, but everyone had a certain core set of values. Now, it doesn't mean that every one of us lived by those values by any means, but I wouldn't know the first thing about sex trafficking. It, it just never was in our, in our heads, right? Like you said, it's, it's push deep and all that kind of stuff. And not that that's the focus of your work right now, but it is part of this whole thing. So is your message going to people like me as a youth where I would, my eyes would be open as to some of what's going on? Because bullying, I can see, is a common theme that basically everybody could talk to. But in some of these schools, they're going to be like, wait, school to prison pipeline? I'm school to, to Princeton pipeline, not school to prison pipeline. Is, is your message meant to help those kinds of of kids understand like that guys there's something way beyond just do your homework here mm. right this is how you be a good person this is how you learn empathy this is how you learn connection or there's not enough resources to do that you got to go to where the at-risk kids are how, how do you guys approach that so I think the way I would answer that there's a lot of there's a lot of things I, I wish I had a notepad in front of me that I would have been writing down but from my first part of the message is that we actually believe at Miramage Arts that all young people are at risk. If we were to use that terminology at risk because of the way that our society treats our young people, we sort of like, I always love the way that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says this. We spend the first year of a child's life teaching it to walk and talk and spend the rest of its years telling it to sit down and shut up. <laughs> and ultimately, so true. ultimately that's what we've experienced with our young people is that how are they going to become an adult when we never give them the opportunity to practice those choices and decisions and freedom to fail now. So we're, we're expecting something that puts them at risk just simply by the way that we treat them as adults. So that, so we are all about working with young people in general across, across um, the Denver metro area. So that brings me to the second point. We really actually are more particularly focused towards working with youth in urbanized areas. Um, that's just where we've been doing most of our work and where we've kind of like really tailored our messaging to that. And then the third thing I would add is that a lot of our activities are meant to resource and create a place for young people to process their own stories. So we are not coming in with these statements or these issues. We are recognizing that we are dealing with a larger systemic issue and we need to deal with that and name that as an organization. But with our young people, we are specifically working on their particular personal stories and whatever they're willing to share. And we're using theater um, to help create a safe space so that we can represent their stories on stage, stories that they have told us without them needing to engage their own yet. But then there are activities along the way and as we build more and more trust, they're, they're more and more willing to share their stories and participate in that way. So those are a couple of the ways that I would address that. And you know, that makes sense because looking through the program selections, everything is like 11 to 22 weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like, hey, we're coming in and it's recess and we're gonna show you this and right. good luck to you. And now we're off to next school. This is an integration into, I'm sure the staff that work there and the kids and the classes that you're involved with, they get to know you guys so that trust does build. You use a tool, it's called social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. Is that is mm -hmm. that what it's called? S-E-L, I believe. How does that, how do you use that to do um, through theater? And mm -hmm. so that if you would define social emotional learning and then give us an example, like a live example of something that it, so you go into an audience and there's 20 kids in there and you want them to start getting the process. So you say, Hey, we're going to talk about 
whatever issue. Now let's interact. Mm-hmm. Like I, I mm-hmm. want to walk down that road. So if you can weave yeah. social emotional learning in with that, that'd be great. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. I actually want to spend just a real quick, um, sentence or two identifying the issue that we saw, and then I'm going to turn it over to Maya to share a little bit more of the answer to your question. So what we found when we were working inside of the school is that our schools, this is one way that adults can fail young people, is that we expect them to get results, get your academic results. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're measuring. That's what we need from you in order for you to succeed. So we name all of that but we give them very minimal support. And, and I still, I, I shout out to all of those counselors, all of the mental health specialists that we do actually have working in schools because they are working really hard to support our young people, but our system itself is not even supporting them very well. There's very few of them. They have to be spread out amongst a lot of schools. So we are not preparing our young people to actually be ready for academics and get those results because they've got a whole nother life that's outside of school and a life that's inside school that has nothing to do with academics. And so we are expecting them to get results around without giving them the support and the tools that they need in order to get those results. So I'm going to turn it over to Maya for the social emotional learning, because that's what we have found is the most crucial thing that we can give them to help them feel successful um, in anything else. Yeah. And so to answer your question and connect it to the question before, we're not going into spaces saying we're talking about the school to prison pipeline. You're a part of it. We go in to teach social emotional learning and social emotional learning is The easiest way to define it is kind of by its five categories. So it's the human development within five areas, social awareness, self-awareness, self-management, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making, right? So those are ideas of self-actualization, self-identity, understanding and regulating emotions, creating goals for myself and the collective group around me. Those uh, resilience, empathy, those are the skills that you're teaching young people to set them up to become the adults that we want in this world, which are compassionate, empathetic, collaborative, creative, curious people who work in community. That's what we're trying to build. Wow. So how do you then connect the dots? Yeah. So what's so great about this work and also tying it back to how are, how do we influence the work is the type of theater and how we use the theater is definitely rooted in our backgrounds. And so theater of the oppressed is a main way with, Andrea had used the word before, it's by Dorothy Hethkett, is this idea of mantle of the expert. That an individual is the expert of their own lives and they actually have a lot of the answers if we just give them the space. So we use the modality of theater of the oppressed with the lens that these young people, they are the experts of their own lives. Who am I to come in and say to a young person, this is the right or wrong way to do something? There are so many components that are at play in a lived experience. We, we don't wanna talk about right, wrong, good, bad. It's all information that helps you make a decision. And then you're going to see what that decision makes and how that impacts the next. And so because of that, we create platforms and spaces where we have characters with stories that have been created through the lens of the real lived experiences of our young people. And I will say most of those stories do fit more in alignment with 
um, lower income, urbanized, at risk youth. But there's also importance in someone who doesn't have that story to hear and know that that is a story that exists in the world and then relating it to their real life. So some of the activities that we do is called backpack, where we have characters who come in with a backpack with items that have meaning to them, and the youth get to ask them questions. Where is this from? Who gave it to you? Why does it matter? And our, young, our actors improvise, and sometimes the storyline changes based on what the youth share. So if five youth say, was that from your grandma? Well, that's a clue that grandma's probably pretty important in this community. So yeah, this item is from grandma. And then that immediately allows the young person to say like, I have a story about my grandma. Got it. Let's hear it. So everything we do along the way is open enough that we really do let the youth we are working with in that moment shift and change and flow based on what they need that day. So how do you know if it's working? How do you track results in something that's, it's, it's, you're, you're intentionally making it a quote unquote soft sell, right? Because everyone does have their life experience and you don't know how they're going to receive it. And they may not even know they're receiving anything. They're just going to a program and they're learning, but they don't know that they're learning lessons about how not to go to prison, right? Because you're teaching them the self-awareness style of things where now they just become a better human. How do you guys track the difference that you're making? Yeah, so that's looked different over the years based on what we're really interested in understanding. So at the beginning of our work, when we really wanted to understand, are we building cognitive empathy? We work with an uh, evaluation specialist to create a pre and a post survey to test and see, are they building cognitive empathy, which we were able to say, yes, there is a statistically significant enough amount of growth. What we're currently really looking at is um, two, two main things. We understand that a piece, a critical piece to disrupting the pipeline is developmental relationships, trusted adults. Our young people are at a staggering number saying that they don't have a trusted adult in their lives. So one of the main ways that we position ourselves is we want to be that developmental relationship. We want to be someone that you trust. So we see that in two ways. One is the qualitative data of how many young people pull us aside to share a piece of a story that they've never told anyone else. That is a very common experience in our spaces. So our facilitators are really trained in how to hold that space and how to move the young person forward once they've shared that information. We also do a post-survey with all of our participants where we ask them a series of questions to see if they do see the facilitators as trusted adults in their lives. And we ask them questions around belonging. Does your voice matter? Did you learn something about another person in this space? Um, a, a series of questions to try and understand what, how they see themselves in relationship to their classmates and the adults in the room. Do you find that there becomes a connection with the kids that you work with after the 11 to 22 weeks? Because I know like when I was in college, I was in the Big Brothers program where I had, you know, one of my own little guys and, and it didn't end 
necessarily when the semester ended. And if you're putting 11 to 22 weeks into someone, I could see how resources could get thin if you go to school, to school, to school, and then all of a sudden you're that trusted adult. Or is there a bridge that you guys try to create like, hey, we're here for you, but these are the questions that you ask to find a mentor, to find a, mm -hmm. a trusted adult, to connect with your parents, because you don't go after the parents. That's mm -hmm. not what you guys do because of, again, resources and focus. Mm -hmm. So how do you maintain that following the exit, if you will, from the program? So one of the things that we're recognizing is in order for us to have the impact we're looking to have in disrupting the school to prison pipeline and, and being a trusted adult in a young person's life, we need to be able to stay with them for as long as possible. And what that means is our ideal state is that we're working second through 12th grade. That's why we have all those curriculums. And then we are gonna be able to follow some of our young people through those grades by partnering with the feeder schools. What's interesting about Colorado is it's a choice um, school network, but there are still community schools, most of the schools that we work in that are community embedded schools and those young people generally follow the feeder pattern. So we should be able to at least work with and continue to work with our young people for a lot longer periods of time because that's the other thing that happens in the school system. There's turnover. Turnover is really high in our education system. And so every single of time- teachers? Turnover of teachers, of administrators? Admin, okay. Yep, and gotcha. every single time one of those turns over, the entire school's culture transitions over. And that is a really significant impact to our young people. And so while we can't prevent that, perhaps we can also still be the adults in their lives that are separate from that system and are not guided or guarded by that system um, that can be with them on that path, on that journey. And so would the team, if, if team A starts with them in junior high or elementary and it goes to junior high, does team A transition to that junior high with that group of kids so that then they stay connected and then they cycle through the thing? Or is there a junior high team, a senior high team, an elementary team? How does that work? Great question. That is a great question. That's something that we're still figuring out is, is it going to be better to um, keep staff within certain areas of Denver and so that they're following ge geographically a space or um, do we keep them with specific age ranges to get really, really good at the curriculum in those age ranges? No matter what, we have it set up where if they're transitioning to a middle school and the teacher's different, we would have the middle school facilitators come into the elementary school several times to start to get to know that class. That makes total sense. Absolutely. Man, what brilliant stuff. You guys have thought outside the box to me. I mean, to you, it's your world, right? To me, I'm like, I've never heard of anything <clears throat> like this until I met with you the first time. Mm -hmm. And so to get this message out is, is critically important. Is there, a, is there a matriculation from someone who goes through the program as a student to come back in to help, even if theater is not necessarily their thing, right? But they were just moved somehow and connected. Do they act as mentors or facilitators for you guys? Wow. So this is yeah. my favorite question because this, is my, this mm -hmm. is my big dream. Mm -hmm. um, so we, are, we have created an emerging teaching artist internship. And the goal is that another way that we're disrupting the school to prison pipeline is by creating a new pipeline, a participant to employee pipeline. And so our ultimate goal is that graduates from restorative theater and our education program called Your Voice would join a paid internship for a year and with the goal that they would then be coming on as 
full-time facilitators. Wow. Well, with that kind of growth, is Mirror Image Arts supported by all private donations? Is Do you guys get paid by the schools to do this? Is this government funding? How, how do you keep going and growing? I looked at your 10-year plan, and it's it's aggressive, and it's cool, <laughs> but that costs money. How do you guys it raise does money? It costs money. So um, one of the things that I learned really early on, because Mirror Image Arts actually almost uh, failed to thrive because it could not diversify its income fast enough. And so we determined pretty early on because of that sort of trauma in the organization that we needed to, essentially, we lost three funders overnight in, in, in a short span, $90,000. And, and wow. that was the main, that was it. That was all that we had. So while $90,000 at the time felt like a lot, it wasn't enough when we lost all three of those funders and all we had was just three funders. So I made it pretty much my mission since taking over as executive director to figure out how to diversify income. And so we have income coming in from their earned income line. So we do um, have program fees. Our young people never pay for it, but our partners work really hard through their own grant funding, through their own um, resources to pay for a portion of our programming. And then we offset it by foundations um, and also by government. There are, there, like here in Denver, there's an awesome opportunity called SCFD, which is a government. Um, I don't know if you know it, but you pay it in your taxes and sales tax. Wow, um, I did not know that. And it goes to arts and culture organizations. Very so cool. We have access to that. And then we also have and are currently widening our uh, base of individual donors and those that support this on an individual level. Um, and we actually have a campaign going on right now. So if anybody wants to become a monthly donor for Mirror Image Arts, it's an easy, tangible way of being able to support your community in a, in a smaller amount. But by the time you're done at the end of the year, you've actually contributed more than you thought you could. So and how, do, how would someone do that? If they were listening, how would they, if they want to contribute and be a part of this incredibly important work, what would they do? Yeah. So mirrorimagearts.org forward slash donate. And that's where you'll find all of those options. And then of course, if you ever wanted to reach out to me or if anybody wanted to reach out to me, I'd be so happy to have a conversation with them. So if you wanted to include my email um, with this post, that would be awesome too. A absolutely. And I got to ask, as we wind this up, this has been so powerful. And just again, the passion that you both have for not only the work, but the kids, each other, the vision, like it's palpable to me. And I'm so glad we got to do this in person because I felt it before over the, over the interweb, yeah. but being here is so much cooler. So thank you for coming in as, um, kind of some final words. If you had a piece of advice to give to a child or to give to a parent or a trusted adult. One piece from each of you that you would give that you think could have the most impact. And by the way, usually my, my question is one piece of advice that you've given that has or been given that's been the most impactful in your life or that you've learned along your journey that has been the most impactful. That's normally my question. So that may dovetail into this for you, mm -hmm. but because this is so focused on others and a specific mm -hmm. group, I'd love for each of you to just share some pearl that you've come across with us. Sure, I can I can go first. Um, I think that the two that came into my mind, one for the adults and one for the youth, for the adults is stay curious. Mm -hmm. How do you stay curious about your young person, about their world? Don't take anything for granted. How do you dig deeper and ask more questions? How do you get a layer lower and doing that through curiosity? And for my young people, I would say, do not lose your imagination. Mm -hmm. Your imagination is one of the greatest 
tools you have that over time society really tries to just harness and tighten and lock up and your imagination is actually one of the most critical pieces of life that you have to move you forward. So quick follow-up to that. How do you maintain a great imagination as, as actors you're constantly spontaneously looking for imaginative ways to do things, especially in improv, I imagine. How, what kind of, how would you go down the road on that if, to follow up with that advice? Honestly, I think the greatest way is by storytelling. Sharing stories, that what is what awakens your imagination, is hearing someone else's story and putting yourself into that story, telling stories and finding new ways to share the stories of your life. And that's what we do through theater. But I think storytelling is one of the most important pieces of our humanity. Beautiful, Maya. How about you, Andrea? Uh, I'll take your cue on uh, both youth and adults. So uh, to a young person, I would also add imagination and play. I think we, uh, as a society, reduce and eliminate play. And play is such a large part of humanity, but it's also how we learn. And so I just, for all of you that that are still playing out there, that's work. (laughs) So keep doing that. That's your work. And then for the adults, um, you know, powerful listening and staying curious. And I think what I would add underneath that is what prevents you from actually being able to listen to somebody else and truly listen. And I would, I would, identify for you or just invite you to think about perhaps it's your own story getting in the way or your own reactions to trauma that you have experienced in your life that you have not necessarily processed through your body and through your heart yet. And so really spending a lot of time on yourself working to process that, that's what enables you the openness, the authenticity and the vulnerability to be able to sit in like in, in, um, uh, language in comfortability with another person, regardless of what it is that they're going through and not trying to interrupt them or trying to fix them or trying to offer advice, but actually being able to truly be there for them and listen to them. Wow. You know what? Great advice for me. I will take all of that. Creative imagination, play, listen. I heard empathy in that. I heard tolerance. So I think that's wonderful for all of us. And you guys, thank you so much for coming and joining uh, one more time, it's Mirror Arts Image. Close. Mirror, that always happens. Mirror Image ah, Arts. Image Arts. Always happens. That's okay. MirrorImageArts.org. MirrorImageArts.org. Yep. Mirror Guys, um, sign on, check it out, reach out, support these, these amazing folks however you can. Ask more questions, be curious, playful. And until next time, be great.